0: Welcome to Eye on the Triangle with Seja Hindi, a weekly glimpse into our community, bringing you news from the brickyard to your backyard.
1: This weekend news on Eye on the Triangle,
0: a brief rundown of the latest news.
2: You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Today is Wednesday, July 13th. In national news, according to MSNBC, the Consumer Product Safety Commission recently proposed new rules for industry standards for cribs. So-called dropside cribs, which feature side railing that can be moved up and down, are quite common. Are the commission's main concern? Only shortly before the commission made the announcement, retailer Pottery Barn Kids recalled 82,000 dropside cribs. And in the face of recently lowered expectations, the stock market has shown week-long gains. The Federal Reserve predicted in April that the gross domestic product would grow between 32 and 3.7% this year. Today, though, the projected growth overall interval was lower to 3 and 3.5%. Unemployment rates are expected to fall as well to 9.1%, the Associated Press reports. Following a day of concern and reluctance on the part of the federal government, BP has been given the go-ahead to test its containment cap. The test involves closing the valves of the cap in an effort to measure the change in pressure flow. High pressure is desired as as it means there is a single flow, while low pressure means multiple leaks. The federal government delayed BP's test under the notion that it could potentially make the leak even worse. White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs insisted that the delay was not quite, quote, some sort of giant setback and that the precaution was necessary. BP Senior Vice President Cantwell stated, too, that the delay was a reasonable precaution and that each move must be completely understood before gone through with. The planned timeline for the relief well, which may consider the last available option, has been blurry since its inception, with projected start dates ranging from late July through mid-August. In international news, in the bloodiest day of this year's Sanferman Festival in Pamplona, Spain, nine runners were injured, three of which by goring. The eighth and final running lasted an unusually long four minutes and 32 seconds as the final bowl became separated from the pack. The festival's tradition has come under much scrutiny throughout recent history with critics citing the overt mistreatment and almost certain death of each of the six bowls involved. And that's it for today's news. Eye on the Triangle's VIP.
3: Talking to people that matter.
2: You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. I'm Sajah Hindi for a VP vip segment today we have a split double segment i know everyone is really anxious to find out about the budget and the uh, tuition increases upcoming for the year but before we go into that we're actually going to talk a little bit about nc state's sustainability efforts and what the legislature is doing to kind of support that um in the studio today here we have outreach coordinator david dean
3: thanks for having me
2: thanks for coming on um what can you tell us about what the Office of Sustainability is doing at NC State?
3: Well, uh, the University Sustainability Office—we're uh, actually over in Admin Three. Uh, we welcome anybody to come by and stop by and check out what we're doing. But we work—we um, work with the Campus Environmental Sustainability Team uh, to lower uh, the greenhouse gas emissions of the university. Uh, we work—we help produce. Earth Day in Campus Sustainability Day. So we do some green events. We're working on uh, creating a green event certification that would be used by green by event planners on campus and by different university departments that say they want to make their office space green. And in, instead of having to come to us, uh, we've been used as um, a resource and consultants of sorts up until this point. Uh, and we have. Uh, only three paid staffers and we have two, uh, paid interns. So we're trying to expand our reach with, and, and, um, this green events and green workplace certification will help us do that. So we're basically creating a culture of sustainability on campus.
2: Okay. And I mean, why do you think that's important?
3: Well, it's, uh, not only is it the right thing to do, um, you know, we, if, even if everybody's wrong about, uh, climate change happening, it's still a better way to go. You know, more efficiency, uh, better buildings, better infrastructure. Uh, that's, that's a positive thing for everybody.
2: Okay. And this is something that kind of, at least in recent past, it seemed that the legislature is taking more of an interest in. Um, there's actually a bill on Governor Purdue's desk right now that proposes um, – that universities get to keep the leftover money that they save from you know, energy savings. What, what do you think about that, Bill?
3: Well, um, personally, that's some of the best policy work that I've seen in a long time downtown on Jones Street. It's uh, something that I've fully supported and, and, uh, and voiced to my uh, uh, representatives that I, th- I felt it was something that was a very good thing because at all 16 institutions in the state – uh, will benefit from this. Uh, as you said, It's 60% energy savings uh, must be used for further um, uh, energy conservation measures on those campuses. Uh, I know at NC State we have close to $700 million of repairs and renovations on, on backlog. And so um, some of these are energy measures or retrofitted measures that can help increase uh, we um, 'll lower the cooling and heating cost of our buildings and increase the efficiency of those buildings, so we can tackle some of those projects now. Um, it's, it's things that might have been on the back burner that we thought we could not get to we 're going to be able to attack and um, so the the bill will save the taxpayers of North Carolina millions of dollars, and the full implications of that um, are, you can 't really fathom what those are right now,
2: okay. And you said that NC State is kind of developing a five-year plan. What exactly does that entail?
3: Yeah, well, we're working on um, actually a five- and a 50-year plan. So it's one kind of master plan that will incorporate a lot of uh, three main elements, and those main elements uh, being a climate action plan, uh, which uh, our former chancellor signed a climate commitment stating that we would develop this 50-year plan, how we're going to achieve carbon neutrality by the year 2050. And that's a goal that we're going to work towards. Uh, the, the Climate Action Plan will set the priorities for that over the next 50 years. Uh, the energy charge, which was passed down by Vice Chancellor Leffler um, in May to um, a bunch of university departments, states, what's our five-year goal for energy? How are we going to tackle energy on campus? It's a, you know We are engineering and agricultural school. Energy is a big deal here on campus. Uh, we want to make sure we're utilizing the innovations and the technologies coming off this campus to the best of our abilities.
4: And, and also
3: we're uh, enhancing the infrastructure and the social uh, changes that, that are needed. Um, we're, we're going to be launching an energy awareness campaign in the fall that's a part of that charge. Uh, uh, Another part of that is a sustainability strategic plan, which lays out a five-year strategies for not just energy, but transportation, and uh, for housing, for land use, and and, and waste reduction and recycling. So those those are big ideas that are coming together. Those will be released uh, in the fall. We'll be going around campus and talking about those particulars in the fall. How
2: does... NC State sustainability efforts. I mean, how do they measure compared to other universities?
3: Well, um, we, in some ways, we're a leader. In, in some ways, we're we're lagging. Uh, each university is different. Uh, you know, Appalachian State, for instance, they've had a green fee for quite some time, and now they have the only um, wind turbine on a university campus in the state. And You know, UNC and Duke both have green fees that help them implement some of these measures uh, quicker, that students um, control what gets funded. And um, so if they want to see a bike rental program, for instance, we have Wolf Wheels. That's based out of the Outdoor Adventures program. Uh, Not many universities in the state have sustainable models for their uh, bike rental programs. We're definitely a leader in that. We are definitely a leader uh, with some of our aggressive uh, building and inf- um, and infrastructure changes. But we are the first LED university uh, in the world. We have the largest uh, residence hall in the country retrofitted with LED lighting, uh, Bergal Residence Hall, if um, which is a is a beautiful lighting configuration over there. All of our, uh, uh, not all of them, excuse me, but Dan Allen Parking Garage and Centennial. Uh, Partners Way deck, uh, several key parking garages have LED lighting throughout. It's safer. It saves us about uh, roughly 30 to 60% on our electric bill, depending on who you talk to and how they're analyzing the numbers. But the point is, it's a lot of money.
2: Okay. And one of the measures that's kind of been receiving a lot of press attention lately is regulated temperatures in buildings. Mm -hmm. Um, What can you tell us about that for NC State?
3: Well, part of that charge, part of the energy charge, um, is an energy policy for campus. And this is something that's in a draft form right now. Uh, the Energy Management Office has been working with some other key constituents on campus to develop the policy. Uh, and the, the basics of it are that uh, we will maintain a certain threshold on the high end, a certain threshold on the low end, in each one of our buildings. But it's very building specific, and it is uh, re- related to relative humidity. Relative humidity in buildings needs to stay between twenty-five and fifty percent. And so, if we have certain buildings where there are research going on that will be affected by high humidity, we would have to adjust that. But um, yes, Duke, UNC have they've announced in the past, each in the past year and a half or two, that they have energy policies for campus and. And we're we're aggressively looking at that and hope to roll that out sometime in the next six months.
2: Okay, and how much money do you think this five year plan will save the university?
3: Uh, we will know the energy charges due to uh, Mr. Leffler on the seventeenth of September, and I would be able to vice tell chancellor you, for uh, finance and business. business. So, um, Vice Chancellor Leffler is uh, over finance and business. He's the one that makes sure. That all of the interns, all the staff, all the faculty get paid. But where the provost is over all the faculty and and academic side, and then the chancellor, those two guys report to the chancellor. So uh, the uh, vice chancellor Leffler passed down this charge, and and it states that uh, we we need to figure out some of those numbers and we need to prioritize those numbers as well. Um, You know, figure out, okay, what's the best bang for our buck? What's what's the best return on investment? Uh, if we spend thirty thousand here, is it going to save us three hundred and fifty thousand? You know, down the line. So, um, right now, that's not a good answer for you, I'm <laughs> sure.
2: <laughs> do you have a rough estimate?
3: <laughs> a rough estimate? I mean, well, you know, we're if we take five percent off our electric bill, which is what we want to do with this new energy awareness campaign, that's roughly two million dollars. So that, if we go out and we tackle it, we're going to target on-campus res- residents, we're going to target freshmen, and we're going to work that for four years, and we'll be able to measure each summer what our reduction is. Our, our electric bill for campus is roughly $33 million a year. So, you know, it's, it's about $3 million that we could shave just by one campaign that we estimate's going to, you know, cost a lot, uh, cost definitely in the... You know, 80 to 90 range
2: pocket pocket change well,
3: over there it, it, <laughs> <just> well, <laughs> for some of the outreach that needs to happen, yeah, I mean really I mean, you know for if you can spend eighty thousand dollars and make three million dollars, that's a pretty good investment.
2: right So what can students do to get involved? What do you need help with, or you know what what can they do on campus?
3: Well, um, you know an easy thing to do is they can join our listserv. Uh, we've got a list of on a website, which is uh, ncsu.edu slash sustainability. Uh, they can join us on Facebook, uh, com slash NC State Sustainability. We've also got a Twitter page. So um, we've also got planning teams for Earth Day and for Campus Sustainability Day. Uh, we've got Recycle Mania. They can educate their friends and you know, educate themselves and educate their friends and, and their doormates about, you know, hey, they're your charger your cell phone charger is plugged in and just because your phone didn't plugged up to it you know it doesn't mean it's not pulling energy it is and uh, instead of putting your uh, computer down to a screensaver put it on hibernate because it actually reduces the power consumption putting your uh, computer on screensaver doesn't do anything to the power so there's, there's little things that you can do sustainability is not hard it's really common sense um, it's just being aware of the things around you.
2: Do you think you'll be able to kind of convince the rest of campus of that and be able to enforce, you know, these different <laughs> rules and regulations?
3: I don't, I don't know about enforce. That's a that's a weird word. I, <laughs> um, but it, it's it's also uh, it's an, I don't, more and more every uh, incoming class we see the awareness of. A, the younger generation, they come in with a level of education that surpasses the previous classes. And, and they are pushing for it more and more. And they realize that what we're doing now will impact future generations. And we need to leave NC State a better place than when we got here.
2: How long have you been at State?
3: Uh, I've been here two years.
2: Why, why did you join the Sustainability Office?
3: I, the... The potential that NC State has to shine as a leader in the state and in the country, and I—we're I, just beginning to tap into that. We—we um, we are number four in the southeast, just ranked by Blue Ridge Outdoors Magazine for greenest or coolest schools um, in the southeast, and and uh, I'd like to see that go up in all national rankings. Um, I think the access we have to the brain power on campus in our faculty and in our students, is something that um, is hard to beat in the southeast. And I'm I'm really I'm proud. To, I, I love walking around this campus. It's, Definitely. It's a beautiful place.
2: Okay. Well, I think that's pretty much it for me, unless you have anything else you'd like to add.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, just check us out on Facebook, and uh, it'll let us know what you think. If you got any ideas, any tips, if if you see a leak on campus, um, report it to URA or you or your building liaison, and, um, you know, just get involved.
2: What is the Office of Sustainability website?
3: It's real easy. Sustainability.ncsu.edu.
2: Okay, and we'll make sure to link that to the blog after the show. Thank you for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me. You're listening to Isle on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. I spoke briefly on the phone earlier today with Hannah Gage, the UNC Board of Governors Chairman, who said their main concern right now is getting word about out about the tuition increase and how it would be impacting individual universities and that the increase to tuition and financial aid would vary for each school, and she would not be able to comment any further than what is already being reported in the paper. She believes our community would be better served by contacting uh, and CSU Chancellor Randy Woodson, who should have already had the information about the inc- how the increase would be implemented, how the funds would be used for classroom support and financial aid packages. She believes his main concern has been that the university... Without the increase, would be unable to ensure that North Carolina State University students would have enough sections of their classes to meet their needs. She said he was supposed to be on campus today to comment on the increase and that we should also try to contact Atul Sibula, a Board of Governors member and recently elected president of the UNCA Association of Student Governments to get a student perspective on the increase and that he was able to make the meetings with Bowles' office last week about the increase that she would not be able to attend. I explained that there was concern amongst the students I knew about the short notice of when tuition was due being due on the 2nd of August and the surprising increase amount. And she said that her office was aware of those concerns and share them and that if we were unable to interview with or Bula, that we should call her back. Uh, Bula will be joining us for an interview.
2: You're listening on Triangle on WKNC 88.1. As Jacob told you, uh, Atul Bula is with us in the studio today uh, by live phone interview and Student Senate President Stephen Kuba. To give you guys a little bit of background information, according to the News and Observer, basically the tuition increase will be a $900 increase, despite the fact that there was a little bit of confusion about it being $750. Um, Cuba, what can you tell us about that?
6: Roughly, the $750 tuition increase for this coming year is in addition to a to a $150 increase from last year. Um, last year, the North Carolina General Assembly, and it's important to understand that these these tuition increases actually came down from the very top. Uh, they didn't come down from, they didn't come up from the university, but came down from the General Assembly through the Board of Governors and through President Bowles. Last year, the uh, the General Assembly passed a $200 tuition increase for all students in the UNC system. That tuition increase was repealed for a $150 increase that came back to the universities as opposed to the $200, which, which went to the general fund. Um, after that two hundred dollars was taken out, the General Assembly had to make up that money somewhere, so they instituted a seven hundred and fifty dollar increase as well as larger management flexibility reductions uh, for each of the UNC school systems
2: okay and I guess one of the concerns like Jacob said was that you know it was kind of late in the process is this unusual for raising tuition
6: it's it's incredibly unusual uh, and it has to go with the time uh, of the year uh, where the budget passed the budget passed on uh, June 30th and they still had to make up those cuts Uh, in order to make up those cuts they had to get that money in now and they had to get those uh, tuitions the the bills rolling out so uh, it is incredibly odd uh, that it happens like this most uh, tuition increases come up from the university Uh, they come from our committees within the university our student government uh, and our board of trustees, and then they moved their way up through the, through the process and said this one came straight down and there's not much we can do about it at this point.
2: Okay. And, I mean, you said you've been fielding calls all day. What were some of students' main concerns?
6: Students are concerned uh, mainly about their financial aid. Um, you know, it's it, there is talk right now that, and they will have to be, all of, uh, all of the tuition uh, or all the financial aid will have to be recomputed. Uh, to include this $900 and to see where, where people stand. Um, you know, that's, that's just the main concern on whether or not they're going to be able to afford to come to school in the fall. Like you said, bills have to be paid by, or they're supposed to be done by the second, and uh, that gives people little time to try and find that money.
2: Is there an increase in financial aid because of this? Or, I mean, I thought it was a 20% increase maybe?
6: <laughs> There's a 20% increase of the $750 uh, for this year. From last year's, one, this is specific to North Carolina State, from last year's $150 increase, there's a 50% of that $150 has to come straight back to the university for financial aid. However, uh, as opposed to this year, where the tw- only 20% of the $750 can go to financial aid. As much as the university deems um, prudent, above the 50% can go to financial aid. 60%, 65%, 70%, 75%. Those decisions haven't been made, but they have that authority. They can use more of the 150 from last year to offset the financial aid difficulties that will come from the 750 this year.
2: Okay. And I mean, why
6: 750? 750 is what was necessary to make up the largest cuts, uh, the largest management flexibility reductions for the largest universities. Uh, NC State's share of the management flexibility reduction um, is roughly, uh, or is roughly $19 million. This tuition increase, seven hundred fifty dollars, goes just north of nineteen million dollars, just north of twenty million dollars. That's what it nets uh, with thirty-two thousand students on campus. If you do some rough math, and once you take twenty percent out of that, out of that uh, twenty million, you still you still fall about three million dollars short for NC State as to how much they're going to have to cut somewhere, do something to make up the rest of the budget shortfall.
2: Okay. Um, and I don't know if you can tell us a little bit about this or if Atul has to tell us about it, but how did the overall process work? I mean, what was what was really different this year?
6: I, I think the severity of the economy is what makes it so different this year. Um, but if, you're, if you would like to know the specific process beyond what happens uh, past the General Assembly, Atul would be better to speak to that. I can speak to what happened at the General Assembly and how those kind of things came about. But after that, once it got to the Board of Governors, a tool is definitely the best one to talk about that.
2: Atul, can you, can you hear us and tell us a little bit about how the process worked this year? Okay, maybe we lost him. Um, okay, so what, what, is, what can NC State do now moving forward? I mean, is there anything we can do, or is this basically it's a 750 and the university is just going to have to deal with it?
6: It's 750. Uh, cut and dry, it's, it's 750 and the university is going to have to deal with it. Uh, it's actually 900 total, and the university is going to have to deal with it. Uh, they will not be able to just simply say n- no anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, there may be a little bit of adjustment, but not much. Okay. Um, I, would, I would bank on $900 tacked on to everybody's tuition bills for the end of this year, uh, and then they'll have to redo financial aid for each student. Okay. Um,
2: so this is not only affecting NC State. I mean, this is affecting... You know all UNC system schools. How how is it determined how much for each for each university?
6: It is from my understanding uh, that President Bowles and all of the chancellors, chancellors met and sat down and looked at their portion of the management flexibility reduction. Uh, once they got a look at how much they had to cut from their budgets uh, in terms of in terms of reductions, then President Bowles and those individual chancellors they sat down and saw how much of that seven hundred and fifty dollars would be needed to make up that cut for this coming year. Okay. Uh, you know, Chapel Hill is slightly less than us in terms of how much they have to cut, or sorry, slightly more than us in terms of what they have to cut. Um, ECU, slightly less. It, it varies amongst uh, population. That's how they compute those kind of things, student enrollment, full-time enrollment.
2: Okay. Um, I think that's pretty much it from our part. I mean, we wanted to basically sure. let students know... Exactly what was going on? I know a lot of it. A lot of concern over, I guess, the timing, especially. Um, is this a decision that has to go to the board of governors no, first, and then?
6: No, the authority. The general yeah. assembly gave the authority well, to do the do to, to Erskine Bowles, the president of the UNC system, to make this determination uh, with the schools, with the individual schools. Uh, this this tuition increase, as opposed to tuition increases in the yeah, past. Uh, will most likely not and does not have to go through the board of governors. Um, it comes straight from the president, and I think if I, if I had to levy a guess, I would most likely say that that is because of the, uh, the quickness of the process that it takes the board of governors a little longer uh, to get through get through the whole process of levying those tuition increases, where the president, President Bowles, can just make those decisions with the individual chancellors. Okay.
2: All right, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, we had some technical difficulties and couldn't get in touch with the tool, but make sure to check out the blog, wknc.org, slash EOT, um, after the show for a statement from a tool.
6: And, and I was going to say thank you for having me, and uh, the chancellor will be releasing a statement about this and explaining more about these cuts further for NC State students uh, okay. in the coming weeks.
2: And we'll definitely link that up there as well. And next up we'll have our community canvas. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1.
0: Community Canvas on Eye on the Triangle.
7: Your local arts news.
0: If you've ever driven or walked down Hillsborough Street at night, you might have noticed a technicolor wall of light shining out from the first floor of D.H. Hill Library on NC State's campus. The color wall, designed by local artist and NC State professor Joe Cox, has been a local oddity since the early 1970s. However, in recent years, it has become much more reclusive due to mechanical problems and disrepair. To learn more about this mysterious piece of art and its future, I talked to Carl Larson and Pat Hall to discuss the wall's history and the latest campaign to revive this piece of Raleigh lore. Here's Carl Larson.
4: The color wall is something I call a kinetic light sculpture. He referred to his creations as light murals. And what our color wall is, it's a 12 by 36 foot canvas that has a series of black metal aluminum veins placed at different angles in front of it. And there's a bank of 23 lights that shine onto the color wall through colored gels that Joe himself designed the colors and created the colors and the combinations that they make when the the system operates through a series of switches that cast different combinations of colors and different sequences onto the wall and the veins create shadows and create an image of movement on the wall itself. It's repeated every three minutes or so, but you can't really tell. (laughs) Looking at it, it looks like a continuous moving pattern of light and color. It was designed to be viewed from outside through the uh, glass wall in that section of the library, and I consider it to be Raleigh's first significant work of public art.
0: The designer of the color wall was a man by the name of Joe Cox, who was born in Indianapolis, Indiana in 1915 and attended the John Herron Art School and the University of Iowa. In his professional career, he taught at the universities of Iowa, Tennessee, and Florida before he finally arrived at North Carolina State University in the early 1950s. Again, Carl Larson.
4: Joe was brought here by... Uh Dean Kemp Hefner of the College of Design back in 1954, Kemp Hefner was responsible for leading the design school at the time to a position of prominence among designers and other universities in the country at the time. And he assembled a group of faculty members that covered all aspects of design, including architecture, uh, painting, and Joe was hired in 1954, and he taught painting studios, and he began to develop his light theories at that time while he was here at NC State. And he retired in 1980 and remained in this area with his wife, Betsy, and he uh, continued to paint and had a house down in Oriental where he taught workshops during the summertime. And I know from friends of mine that were students of Joe that he was beloved by all his students,
0: the color wall was controlled by a small black box hidden in a closet. Carl Larson explains.
4: The box as it exists is about an 18-inch cube of sheet metal that Joe and an electrical engineer associate has actually constructed. Inside the box are a series of switches. They're toggle switches. There's 12 of them. And each switch is thrown in a certain order to make the gears inside move at the proper times to give the proper sequence of lighting. While
0: the black box functioned the way it was designed, it required constant attention and repair. This was easy enough when Joe Cox worked at NC State. However, after he left it became increasingly difficult to repair the color wall and eventually fell into neglect. In the 90s, it was prone to malfunction, and in 2007, it finally went dark forever. Mr. Larson tells us the story.
4: After he retired, an associate of his continued to make the repairs on the mechanical box. But eventually, especially after Joe passed away in 1997, the uh, box was old then. It was 20 years old, and it began to malfunction more often, and there was no one around that could make proper repairs on it. So over the course of the next 10 years or so, it was continuously broken down, and the light bulbs would burn out, the colored gels would crack and break. So before its most recent restoration, by 2004, it had gone dark completely. And a restoration was initiated that year to restore the lights anyway. The box could not be repaired at the time or replaced so that it functioned moderately. But again, the box broke down in 2007, and it's unworkable and irreparable. And that's when I got involved.
0: While the color wall could no longer be seen, it had not been forgotten. In 2007, Carl Larson and a fellow editor of the blog, Goodnight Raleigh began to look into the disappearance of this nighttime spectacle, and what they found made them take action.
4: Carl Larson. I'm a contributor to the blog Goodnight Raleigh and we specialize in nighttime photography mainly of downtown Raleigh and Hillsborough Street and John Morris, the publisher of Goodnight Raleigh, had only been in Raleigh for a couple years and he was asking me one time about what were any spectacular nighttime displays that he could photograph on Hillsborough Street and I told him about the color wall and he had not heard about it. Uh, He knew where the library was of course but he'd never seen it. He didn't know anything about it so I told him where it was, how to see it, vantage point. So he came over that night and found that it was not working. So he went into the library and asked the circulation desk, what's with the color wall? Why isn't it on? And the person behind the desk said, what color wall? And then he kept asking questions and no one really knew anything about it. He told me the next day when I asked him how did he like the color wall, and he said it wasn't working. And so I, I came over to investigate the following day and began asking questions and finally got to somebody that knew what the color wall was and found out that it had been restored for a brief time in about 2004-2005 and then it had broken down, the mechanical switching system had broken down permanently in late 2007. So through various contacts here on campus, I learned that the reason it had not been restored after its most recent breakdown is because there was no public funding to pay for it. The library has to maintain its own art collection, and at the time was the height of the um, financial crunch, and campuses all over the state were not permitted to spend money on anything but essential needs. So any kind of Public monies cannot be spent on the color wall. And I spoke with Patrick and said that um, what if we raise the money privately? And, of course, he was all about that.
0: This is the part of the story where Carl's friend, Pat Hall, a professional arts and community organizations fundraiser, joins the story. On a Sunday afternoon, the two were sitting around talking. He told her about the state that the wall was in, and he told her how willing the library was to get it fixed. He also told her about his dream to once again be dazzled by the vibrant, ever-changing colors that the wall once created. Then he asked her help. Here's Pat.
1: My first question as a fundraiser is, well, how much do you need to raise? And he said, oh, about $6,000. And I said, well, that's probably doable. Um, He said, oh, well, let's have an auction or something. And I kind of declined that. And I said, no, Carl, we need to get more of the community involved people who were involved with the design school people in the arts community in raleigh and get a little bit more community involvement involved with this project so i went down to lee hansley gallery one afternoon and talked to my friend lee and asked him who in the community might be interested in helping us work on this project and i got several great names from him and i went and talked to these individuals and they said that they would be willing to form what we have called the color wall committee and they would make a financial commitment and with that financial financial commitment in place. We had about enough money to to pay for the switching system, but the bid that Carl had originally got was three years old, and as we know, prices increase after a three-year span. So we went back to the library and asked for a new bid, and of course, the cost of the new switching system increased to over $10,000. So we had a little bit more of a challenge to raise some money. We collected some prospect names, did a direct mail campaign, used Facebook and our website and actually a lot of people were very interested and some dollars started coming in.
0: The dollars did start coming in and so did help from Joe Cox's niece. She donated 11 original works from his collection and Pat Hall helped set up an exhibition of his paintings in the Hainsley Gallery. A total of five ended up being sold and that was enough to pay for a new controller to get the wall working again. It even left enough money to create a maintenance fund for potential future problems and it was all done in time to coincide with the reopening of Hillsborough Street. Again, Pat Hall
1: as everyone on campus and in the community knows that Hillsborough Street has been a mess for quite a while and we know that there's going to be a Hillsborough Street reopening celebration and we thought we couldn't find a better tie-in to relight the color wall so we've been working with the folks um, on the Hillsborough Street Community Development Corporation that is planning that event and so we plan on lighting the color wall on Saturday September 25th approximately 8 p.m. So hope everybody will come out to that and it'll be just so wonderful to share that with the public.
0: After a year of hard work and lots of help from the community, the Joe Cox Color Wall will once again light up Hillsborough Street from dusk to midnight, delighting to everyone who passes by this landmark, this time for good. If you would like to find out more about the Color Wall, Joe Cox, or the Hillsborough Street reopening, please visit thecolorwall.org. This has been Chris Chaffee for I on the Triangle.
3: Hear this on I on the Triangle
0: your local music
3: news.
5: You're listening to Hear This on Eye on the Triangle. SparkCon, a Raleigh-based volunteer-driven arts festival held at the bookend of summer, is entering its fifth year. I'm joined by two of this year's Music Spark organizers, David Turnage and Mary Ellis, to talk about this year's event. Thank you for joining us this evening. How do you describe SparkCon to people who aren't familiar with the festival?
7: I would say that SparkCon is a a local arts festival that is entirely volunteer-run. It's a really great way to connect different artists within the community as well as connect the community to the arts. It's just a really fun way to get everybody out there and let the community know what amazing town is in its own backyard. And that's held in downtown Raleigh in late September? It is. It's going to be September 16th through 19th in downtown Raleigh.
8: We're actually, this year, is going to be on Fayetteville Street, starting at the City Plaza over by the Marriott and running all the way up to Hargett Street. And then have a, oh, actually,
7: it's to the Capitol.
8: Actually, it's to the capital, <laughs> and we're going to have some of the side streets as well. So there'll be plenty of room for everybody.
5: The area of SparkCon that you're involved with is Music Spark. What niche do you see that serving the festival?
7: Um, I would say it provides a pretty cohesive aspect to the whole thing. Other Sparks have spotlight here and a spotlight there, and they'll have you know a specific venue that they're associated with, or you know, like Idea Spark is our kickoff, and it'll be Thursday night, and it's going to happen at Kings. So that's a, a one one-shot deal but music kind of is pervasive throughout the whole thing so throughout the whole weekend for thursday night through sunday afternoon there will be various musical acts on stages and in venues and even in art galleries
8: yeah that's one thing with our music spark we cross lines where we'll have some of our musical talent that we collect doing stuff for other sparks so we really do feed a lot into it with um just you know if someone needs something for an art show they want a dj they want a band Mm-hmm. And we're able to plug that in for them.
5: One of the big changes to Music Spark this year is how you handle the prep work. You started much earlier, correct?
7: We did. We we started pretty much right after last year's SparkCon, so um, which normally it would start in May. So we tried to get a a big head start. We knew that um, other music festivals put out their call for talent much earlier than we had in the past, and it gave them a lot more um, versatility and ability to. To program and plan and not feel completely uh, frantic at the end, so so we actually put out our call for talent in February and then we closed it at the beginning of May. We amassed um, about 150 applicants, and so we are currently plugging them into venues.
8: I don't think Music Spark ever really stopped from last year, which is (laughs) definitely the first time I think before you know it's had that little lull. But yeah, we've been meeting every two weeks.
7: And now we're yeah. an every week. Now we're so. every
8: week, yeah. So we've been uh, quite busy. It gets a lot of planning done, but it mm-hmm. helps it out where, you know, it gives people a little bit of a chance to get involved if they're busy or anything like that. So it's, um, we definitely got a lot done this year, a lot faster than we did last year.
5: Raleigh and the Triangle in general is home to a rich, diverse, and established musical community. What do you do to ensure that you meet your stated goals of making sure that local musicians of all genres, levels of notoriety, and experience have a chance to let the community see what they bring to our diverse and creative table.
8: Well we look at all the submissions and basically what we did this year is we have a big spreadsheet where everyone just sees all the bands, a little description. And we have to listen to all of them. So we you know, we would go to Design Box, we set up in there one night and we just you know, buckle down and listen to as many bands as we mm-hmm. can possibly listen to, and everybody just gives feedback. And some stuff people we had heard of, some stuff we'd never heard of. And I can't think of that gives it a good mix. We might have people who are playing their first show ever. Right. And that's kind of what we're trying to look to do is just give that little bit of a showcase to someone who might not have had a chance to play anywhere. But it sounds good.
7: And the good thing is we have um, – it's open to any volunteers that want to come. So, you know, even if you're in one of the bands that has applied, you can come and sit in. And um, so what that does is we have volunteers that, you know, we have – people that play bluegrass we have people that do classical music we have so we have a broad range of volunteers as well which gives us a better um gauge to listen to the variety of music that's submitted what
5: format or process did the submissions go
8: through this year we went pretty much with an online submission form so most of the stuff was uh, your myspace page your rebirth nation page uh anything like that i don't think we had a lot of people submit anything that was on a CD this year. I think most all of it was through the web, which made it a lot easier on us. And I think a lot easier on the bands because you went to the spark on website, you click the link and then it just brings the submission form up, put your band name, give a little description, put some links to your music. And that's basically Mm -hmm. it. Where last year it was a lot more written paperwork.
7: That had been one of the key complaints that we had heard from the different bands that had submitted was that we didn't have an online submission process. So that was one of the things we really wanted to tackle this year was to make it more user-friendly to the bands. So um, if they didn't have a page, they had the option of saying that they wanted to email in some MP3s. And so they were sent an email address that they could send stuff to.
5: A little while ago, you mentioned other music festivals and how they typically have earlier submission times. If we're going to talk about other music festivals, I have to ask you about the Independent Weekly's Hopscotch Music Festival. It's also occurring in downtown Raleigh in September. Did you feel like they were stepping on your toes a bit, or was there some cooperation, collaboration going on since they're both in September?
7: It It is, it is, and we are excited about that as well. I mean, you know, our whole purpose is to promote local arts and, you know, all of these great festivals that are happening, they're all good things for the Triangle, so... We did actually sit down and meet with uh, Greg Loenhagen and Grayson Curran, and we talked about, you know, how their their goals and our goals and made sure that we weren't counterproductive to each other. We think that the whole idea of having these two events so close together is actually only good for both of us because their focus is slightly different than ours, and since ours is also part of a, a bigger whole, you know, that incorporates a lot more types of art, we are not at cross-purposes. So,
8: it also, I think, it just you got to look at the month of September in Raleigh. It's going to be a busy month. Uh, There's just so much going on towards the end of the summer. Uh, I think that our festival brings a lot more with the arts, and we've got a lot of different stuff going on with Spark on this year. Um, This year we have a circus spark. Uh, There's going to be a lot of entertaining things. I think it's going to appeal to a lot of people. So um, just having them back-to-back like that is probably going to be better than last year. So we're really looking forward to it.
7: Right. Hopefully people will will come to the Triangle for Hopscotch, and hopefully they'll stick around for SparkCon.
5: Let's talk submissions for a minute. Can you tell me and the listeners what bands have been confirmed? And if not, can you at least give us a hint on what to expect?
7: We need to go ahead and still solidify everything, but I know Rooster for the Masses are going to be playing. Um, But we also have a bunch of other bands. We're going to have, like, a bluegrass showcase. We're also going to have a classical composers showcase at uh, Flanders Gallery, which is really exciting. We... um, tried to branch out this year uh, and include more genres and different types of things. So if everything works out, we may even have a panel discussion with a composer that was commissioned to do a piece for the um, North Carolina Symphony. So that could be exciting.
5: How will the classical composers showcase focus? Will it be original compositions or just local interpretations?
7: One of our volunteers, Seamus, who is from uh, Chapel Hill, he actually was in s and and Eminem. Has put together a classical composer showcase. What he does is he has gathered musicians who have their own original compositions, and so he is going to have them perform their pieces.
5: Since you aren't able to solidify any lineups yet, what's the best way to stay abreast of stages and bands as they become available?
8: Well, if you go to the sparkon.com website, you, everyone's got a tab for their different sparks. So go over to the Music Spark, and we'll be keep, keep posting up information there as it comes available. Also, we have a Facebook page that you can go to and I guess like. Is that what you do now with those now? Okay. You (laughs) like our Facebook page and we'll keep posting information there. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Music Spark. Mm -hmm. So we keep, we try to put up information as we keep it available. But right now, uh, we probably will have some kind of announcement with venues and bands coming up in the next month or two.
7: Definitely. I would actually say probably in the next maybe two to three weeks. So, um, And we're doing little teasers along the way on the Facebook page. So um, every once in a while, if one of the bands that we know has been locked in for Music Spark is playing somewhere, we'll say, you know, you may want to check their show out tonight, wherever they're playing, and they'll probably be at SparkCon. So.
5: To wrap things up, what are some of your favorite moments at SparkCon past?
7: I mean, I would have to say that last year during the actual events, it was... Just the running from venue to venue to venue and scoping everything out and just seeing like the spectrum of stuff that we had somehow managed to as inexperienced volunteers throw together in the course of like three months and to see it all play out really well was very exciting.
8: Yeah, I think that um, just seeing all that get put together and all the work that goes into it and watching it finally culminate into the actual event, it's, it's a good payoff. And we're always looking for people to come that want to get involved and help us. If you, you know, if you're interested in doing this, just get in touch with one of us through the SparkCon website, and you know, you can be a volunteer. We'll take you now if you're really serious. You've
5: been listening to hear this on Eye on the Triangle. Thanks to Mary Ellis and David Turnage for coming in and giving us an update on this year's Music Spark. If you're curious what you sound like, Triangle, go downtown Raleigh, September sixteenth through the nineteenth. For more on SparkCon, go to www dot sparkcon.com. and of course keep listening to eighty eight point one. I'm Jacob Downey and this is eye on the Triangle.
2: And that wraps up another episode of eye on the Triangle and WKNC eighty eight point one. As always, send us your comments, suggestions, and questions to public affairs at WKNC.org and keep nominating people for Wolfpacker of the Week on WKNC.org slash EOT. In reference to our tuition increase discussion, if you're on Twitter, you can follow us at WKNC EOT, but also if you have something to say about the tuition increase, go ahead and at WKNC EOT and at NCSU Technician with the hashtag NCTuition.